Before we start today, I want to introduce a new sponsor to the podcast, Certified Site Safety. This is a company that I am proud to recommend for patients of mine and anyone else seeking help in evaluating mold and other toxins that might be present in their home. If you've listened to a prior podcast of mine, Is Your Home Killing You?, you know that I interviewed Joe Reese, who is a true mold detective. Joe evaluates homes and has saved many of my patients from toxins in their home by evaluating them and teaching them how to remedy it. If you see or smell any effects of water damage in your home, Joe and his team at the Certified Site Safety are the team that you want. Their website is www.certifiedsitesafety.com. And Joe welcomes calls to even his cell phone, 914-437-5454. So many of us don't know where to turn when our home is making us sick. Now you know. Please contact Certified Site Safety, and Joe will help organize his team to remedy your problem. Welcome, everyone, to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Today, my guest and I will be discussing the approach to making the difficult diagnosis in conditions like mast cell activation, toxic mold disease, candida overgrowth, Lyme disease. It seems like a lot, but these are really complicated medical conditions, and I'm really pleased to have our guest today who's really an expert in this. Her name is Dr. Tanya Dempsey. Dr. Dempsey is the founder at the Ames Center for Personalized Medicine in Purchase, New York. And for those of you not in the New York area, that's Westchester. That's just north of Manhattan. Quick drive. She also has an associate, Dr. Lawrence Afrin, who we've interviewed on the podcast in the past, who also is a well-known expert in mast cell activation syndrome. I recently attended the Integrative Healthcare Symposium in New York, where Dr. Dempsey was a, a keynote speaker, and she gave an excellent presentation on an update on mast cell activation syndrome. I know as I was walking out of the conference, I heard all the people talking and saying, God, that was really good. <laughs> so it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Tanya Dempsey to the podcast. Thanks, thanks for having me, Dean. Okay. All right. So I always start with a little bit of a personal question, nothing dangerous, but a personal question <laughs> about in medicine. So I'm going to ask you, you're a John Hopkins trained physician. How did you end up in functional medicine versus all the other areas of medicine? And then probably part two of the question is, how did you end up teaming up with Dr. Afrin? Oh, yeah, that, that's a that's a great, I love, I love talking about this because um, it's a really interesting journey. At least mm. I think it's an interesting journey for me. You know, I did start out, uh, you know, with very conventional in very conventional medicine, you know, trained, you know, I, I went to Johns Hopkins Medical School. Yeah, you know, I went to I did my residency at NYU in New York and, you know, really was on this path to do allopathic medicine do inter, and, and really internal medicine. And the problem was that I, I came from a sort of more integrative, holistic approach personally 
I sort of grew up with a mother who, and a, and a grandmother who was, you know, sort of always thinking about food as medicine and um, thinking about, you know, the, the nutritional issues that we might have if we had a certain problem. I remember, I tell the story a lot. I remember when I was a teenager and I would, you know, have a few pimples and my mother would, would consult her little vitamin book and, you know, okay, take some zinc and, okay. you know, vitamin D and whatever else. Right. And so I kind of came up, came, you know, I grew up thinking about, uh, this sort of more holistic way of thinking and, and, and the, again, the power of food and the power of, of nature. Right. So I had that on one side and then I was doing this like really straight Hardcore. path yeah. right, in, in medicine. And I just kept thinking I had to keep the two areas separate. Like I was living my life, you know, eating, eating really well, thinking about what I was putting in my body, um, exercising, meditating, doing those things. And then I was, you know, writing the scripts for cholesterol medications and blood pressure medications. And at some point, the two, ha- you know, started to right. Really... You felt you had a divided life. You were like Jekyll and Hyde. <laughs> yeah. And I couldn't, I couldn't hold it back. I couldn't not share with my patients what I, you know, was personally finding. was doing. I know it's, it's really interesting. It's kind of very similar to myself. So yeah, mm-hmm. I love hearing that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I got, I got to a point where I just couldn't take it anymore. So. Yeah. And it's not almost like mother knows best, you know, when your mom was giving you all the, the advice, you know, sometimes it's really fascinating because a lot of those things we find out later are really are, do are, you know, true. And, uh, you know, because we keep on moving. We, we were so fascinated with technology and I mean, medicine in our lifetime, I mean, I mean, honestly, obviously, even when we were in medical school, I mean, there were no MRIs, you know, there were not all this incredible technology. So as we both know, doctors kept moving further and further away from the patient's bedside. <laughs> but that's another whole issue, you know, with oh, yeah, medicine. Absolutely. And how did you end up with Dr. Afrin? How did you guys two team up together? You know, so so I was on my own already. I had made a decision that I was going to, you know, start my own practice doing integrative medicine. And you know, initially, I I did primary care and integrative medicine together, right. and then realized that I really couldn't support doing the primary care part of things. But but anyway, I'm I'm treating patients, and you know, I'm I'm attracting patients who have complex issues, right? Because I'm sitting, I'm talking to them. I mean, my my mission was to really um, provide the best care, you know, with, with giving patients time and trying to help them navigate their, their, their medical issues. And so, you know, I had this, I had this one patient who um, had, you know, this really sort of complicated uh, symptomatology, and we were really trying to figure out what happened. She was sort of, she went from what I thought was healthy to all of a sudden being sick, and we really had to try to navigate it. And I remember one day reading, I was, I was looking at PubMed, I was Googling, I was just trying to figure her out, and I came across mast cell activation syndrome. And that must have been about 20... 15, 14. Oh, wow, that was really, really early, early in the... Early, early. You know. And I remember talking to her and um, and somehow there was some family member who who sort of maybe knew Dr. Afrin or there was some kind of connection that I remember her saying once to me, will you talk to Dr. Afrin about this? He's the expert in this, you know? I said, yeah, I would, you know, would love to. And I was so, so surprised that he was so open. You know, I called his office. I was like, can I talk to him? And you know, of course, you know, he was so, so open with his time. And I remember starting to talk about patients with him. And, um, and then it was just one of those, those sort of serendipity sort of situations. I did a podcast with Dr. Ronald Hoffman and on on MCAS. And I remember he, um, he emailed me after, after he had heard that podcast 
And uh, I remember, you know, it was sort of like, hi, Tanya, kudos to you. You nailed it. That's exactly, you know, it was well done. And I was mm. so honored. I said, oh, my God. Right, gosh, right. Know? Yeah, from the master, you're getting uh, praise, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I thought, oh, I, you know, this is great. And I remember him saying that he was really unhappy where he was and didn't feel like people were really getting it, you know. And I said, and I just made it was a sort of like an off the cuff comment, like you should come to New York because in New York, well, you know, we we're open about these things and mm-hmm. I'm exploring all these things. And I was telling him about my practice and where I was going. And the next thing I know, he was on a plane coming to visit me. And we were, you know, we were sort of talking about like how we can join forces. And next thing I know, he, you know, he oh, wow. I was That's... so honored. Uh-huh. So have That's a great. I love that story too. It really shows you serendipity and you never know when you're reaching out. I mean, it's, yeah, you just never big, know. Exactly. You never know how the paths, you know, where, where life takes you, you know? Absolutely. So. All right. So this really helps me segue into what we're going to be talking about today. And I'm going to really, this is good. This podcast is going to be personally very interesting to me. And I really hope again for our listeners, because as you mentioned, you and I both deal with complex medical cases, not the kind of case that you can figure something out in five, 10 minutes. Um, so I want to ask you this, you know, I, it's so interesting how medicine has changed. You know, some, all of us pretty much have patients fill out some registration forms before they come to see us, whether it's in person or now I'm seeing a lot of virtual patients, which I'm sure you are too. It's, it's actually very fascinating because I'm getting to speak to patients all over the country and help them where they hopefully haven't gotten help before. But what I want to know, you know, a lot of the patients, again, when we did training in medicine, it was chief complaint, meaning give you what's your symptom, you know, what's, what's bothering you. But now patients are so educated and they're doing their research online. They'll come in and on the forms, they'll put, I think I have MCAS, you know, mast cell activation syndrome. So my job, and I'm sure yours too, as a physician is like, okay, wait, I want to really see if you have this. You know, you get the, the patient can't make the self-diagnosis. They can, you know, they can present it, but then I want to listen to what I think would confirm it. So I want to ask you, when you're taking the history on your patients, what gets your antenna up about mast cell activation? You know, you're sitting back listening to the story or guiding them. What, and I know myself, I'll I'll share in a few minutes, like what sets off bells for me, but what, what for you, are you like looking or listening for? You know, so I start the history at their birth or actually even before mm-hmm. in their mother's history and their and the mother's pregnancy, if they know that information, you right. know, and, and often what you hear is, so as they're telling me sort of in chronological order, the things that they've dealt with, you know, there are just some red flags that usually, you know, sort of become obvious to me that, yeah, there's, you know, there's probably some issue potentially with MCAS. So, you know, often it's, it's multi-systemic. You know, they have, you know, they may present, they may have um, history of frequent uh, infections. They may have a history of bladder issues or urinary tract issues. They may have issues with asthma. They may have issues with with, um, joint issues. They may have migraines. And when I start to hear things that like are involving multiple areas of their body, right away, I know it's multi-system. And so we know that MCAS is a multi-system inflammatory condition. So I hear inflammation, I hear multiple systems. Now, you know, MCAS does not have to have allergic type symptoms. You know, I think about the three themes of of MCAS and and you could have allergic phenomena. You know, we always say like plus minus allergic phenomena, plus minus inflammation, plus minus dystrophisms or 
or abnormal growth and development. Mm. But so sometimes those patients have these sort of allergic like symptoms, and that will definitely sort of, you know, point me in that direction, but it's not, it's not necessary. And that's the one thing that I always tell other, other practitioners is that, you know, don't rely on the allergy history because Mm. they may not have it. Right. Certainly if they do, I'm certainly even more suspicious. You know, it's interesting, you know, and uh, again, in your talk, I, I was looking up the questionnaires, the, it's one of them's called breezy and queasy. They sound all, you know, with the easies. Um, we're very interesting. You know, my background, you know, I trained in my fellowship was in allergy, immunology and infectious disease. So again, the, the, the initial part of my career was very allergy based. And what I find fascinating now is how much my field missed the boat on this, because you know, we were so involved with what's called IgE, that immunoglobulin that, you know, we know causes the patients now, like with the, the spring pollen, to have sneezing and wheezing, the asthma, and the patients that I see that have the severe food allergies. But we kind of ignored the cell that this IgE binds to, the mast cell, right? <laughs> and uh, it was like a little, a little oversight. And so now when I look back, You know, I think because it it befuddled the allergy field, like, you know, when patients had multiple drug allergies, like when I hear patients allergic to multiple antibiotics, my antenna goes off. Hmm. Is their mast cells hyperreactive? When I hear about those patients that say they have multiple chemical sensitivities, you remember, these are the patients that no doctor wanted to see, like, go see, (laughs) go see Dr. Mitchell. Don't, you know, they run as, they, they send them out of their office as fast as possible because these people have too many symptoms and they sound so bizarre because I had patients, I remember once they used to walk through the supermarket aisle and if they were walking where the detergents were, they would start getting sick and the doctors, again, didn't know what to make of it. Um, I think the other thing, too, which I think you would agree, is it's interesting how abdominal symptoms are such a big thing. I mean, it's also a little bit of a black box for the gastroenterology doctors because they, you know, they like finding ulcers. They like finding colitis. When they have these patients that have, you know, the constipation, the bloating, you know, the IBS-like symptoms, it's, you know, they don't know what to do about it. And so for me, this, you know, again, what I'm listening for is, again, those multiple reactions. I'm, I'm looking for abdominal symptoms. I know, as you mentioned, there could be a lot of different things. And I guess the final straw for me, if I get them in the office or I have them do it over the computer, because I want to see, I look to see if they have dermatographism. Because I was very interested, you know, I, I think a paper published actually by Mariana Castales that uh, I interviewed for this podcast, and she's wonderful. Yeah. You know, she published a paper, maybe Dr. Afrin was on, it, I don't know, it was like a, it was a big paper that... I think the three top symptoms they found were, well, they found like 90, 80 to 90% of the patients that had dermatographism, you know, bowel symptoms, whether it was diarrhea, bloating, constipation, and, uh, and I think it was the multiple medications. So anyway, I was just curious, you know, because again, you're seeing so many of these cases. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. And you're right. I mean, yes, they have sensitivity. They have often, very often, but uh, how do I put this? There are lots of patients who um, have more subtle symptoms yes, and they're the ones yeah. that get missed mm-hmm. even more. You're right. Because they, right. So you are absolutely right. You know, the chemical mm. sensitivity part, the, the sensitivity to drugs, always that, you know, always mm. thinking about that, but a lot of them don't, you know, they, they have these subtle symptoms, you know, they've been to a bunch of neurologists. They have right. some neurologic right. symptoms. The neurological ones, right. Mm-hmm. They have, um, uh, you know, uh, fatigue, Fatigue yeah. is probably one of the most common symptoms I see right. uh, with MCAS. 
So um, yeah, so my my you know my alert is uh, button is always going off. You have a you have a you have a trigger finger. You're you're right on the button a lot. I'm on, I'm on, uh, what what about also too? Now again, this is fascinating too. Is family or genetic history, right? Yeah. I mean, do you do you see that? Like sometimes it's like it's like runs on a family where the the patient will say, I don't know, you know, when I'm looking back now, my mom was sick all the time. You know, she had chronic fatigue syndrome and nobody knew what to do about it. And she had this, that, and that. Do you, do you find that's also pretty important? Very, very, yeah, very, very common. Mm. And, you know, the question is really, what is that genetic link? You know, what, what is that um, specifically for MCAS? I mean, we see quite a bit of um, auto-inflammatory syndromes now, now that we're testing more and more. And so there, that is definitely genetic. Um, and maybe that's driving um, some of the MCAS, but we certainly don't know the the genetics of MCAS. Like we don't mm. we don't know why it runs in families. And I think what's um, really interesting is that often the the manifestations of MCAS are very different, right? So you could have they can have let's say a mother with you know let's say uh, fibromyalgia or um, allergic like symptoms, but their own symptoms or the way their their mast cells react or the mediators that their mast cells make are different mm, from their right. other family members, yeah. mm. which becomes really complicated, because, complicated uh, so complicated because their mother, let's say, could do well on, let's say, Zyrtec as an antihistamine because that's, you know, what's working for their, you know, her mast cells, but then the patient you know, that may not work. It might, I mean, sometimes, you know, sometimes I'll see some, some trends in families, but very often they're very different. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, each patient has to be addressed, you know, individually. What would you say? I know you talked about in the lecture. I just, I think the listeners would really appreciate it is, would you say our, our big underlying triggers for MCAS? Yeah. You know, I, I guess, you know, to, to think of it this way, um, there's primary MCAS, which is really, um, you know, if you if you interview someone like Dr. Castells, it's going to be more of a clonal problem. Right. Um, you know, we look at it maybe uh, our side maybe looks at it slightly different, but but they're they're right. They're they're sort of like this mutation in the level in the line of the mast cells, and and it's from early in life, um, and then there are triggers throughout the life throughout their life that brings it out. Right. Uh, well, that's, that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Exacerbates it. Right. So there are those triggers. And then there's secondary MCAS, which really is a result of one of these triggers. So this is a patient that's, let's say, didn't have a history of MCAS who then has a trigger, uh, you know, an environmental trigger, mold, uh, an infection like Lyme disease, um, a stressor, a trauma, something that actually brings out um, MCAS. That's a great. That's a great point. I, I'm, I'm going to stop you on that too because that, you know, that's exactly what I think you talked about in the um, the lecture. And uh, again, why these things are so intertwined. I mean, I'm sure you do, and I see also a lot of toxic mold. You know, what they call the CIRS patients now. And I, I almost give the example like the the mast cell issue is sitting on the top and the mold is underneath it. You know, they all of a sudden a person moves into a mold. Let's say they were fine most of their life. Now all of a sudden they moved into a moldy environment and they're sick and the mast cells now are releasing like crazy. That's why they're getting neurological problems or they're breaking out in rashes. You know, I also thought it was fascinating what you said, how uh, even like surgical implants, I never even thought of that. You know, so many people now are getting hip replaced, the knee replaced, you know, so implants. 
breast implants dental, too. Dental implants. Dental implants, right. I mean, yes. so. From, from like hernia surgery. I mean, you name mm. it, there's all these things like foreign foreign objects that can, can be a, a trigger. And I would say that the vast majority of patients we see have the susceptibility for this to happen. And then, and so it's not really secondary because I want to be clear, a lot of patients, let's say, um, are, think they're healthy. They get, let's say, let's use breast implants as a, as an example, Mm. and then they get breast implant illness and they take the breast implants out and some of them get better. And then some of them notice that they get better, but then they either don't get fully better or they relapse and they Mm. say, well, it doesn't make sense, right? The implants are out of the body. What is happening? And I would argue that they had underlying MCAS, the implant brought it out more reactivity, but the mast cells didn't reset after they took out the implant. And that's unfortunately very often what happens. And so I think that's why it's so important to identify this and then to treat it. I mean, it's one thing to sort of avoid triggers. We say this all the time. Step one of treatment of MCAS is is avoid or take out your triggers, right? So if you're in a moldy environment, you have to leave. If you have an implant that is affecting you, you have to figure out a way to to help that or, or fix it. If there's some other trigger, if you have an infection, you have to treat that. But at the end of the day, it's still possible that there's some underlying MCAS there that has to be treated independently. Yeah. Along, you know, one of the, along the, the way. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things, of course, patients they hate having to admit to it is also stress. And, you know, we really understand that also, too emotional stress, you know, um, life stress. You know, because as you know, it's been shown through, I guess, what is it, the corticotrophic stimulating, uh, releasing hormones, CRH and all that stuff too. It really, literally, you put yourself in an extremely stressful situation or unfortunately it, it comes to you with a, a death, a divorce, an illness in a family and that can set it off. And, you know, again, p- patients get classified as hypochondriacs or, you know, somatoform diseases, but this is, this is real, you know. I think the frustrating thing with MCAS, as you know, and I want to hear some of your thoughts on this too, is the testing is so, you know, a lot of times inconclusive or difficult. So take us through some of the tests that you, you mentioned something I'm going to bring up, you know, that I hadn't even thought of, but um, what, what tests do you like to order to try? So the patient says, you know, Dr. You know, Debsey, this sounds all great or whatever, you know, but it, you know, how do you show this to me? How do I, how do I know this is really MCAS? And and honestly, it's difficult because the testing we have, you know, we're, we're testing for the mediators, the, the chemicals that the mast cells are releasing, and, and many of them are thermolabile, so like heat destroys them very quickly, or they just have very, very short half-lives in general. So to catch that in a urine or in a blood test, it can be difficult. So I want to be clear, there are some patients that the first round of testing we do is negative. And I say to them, it doesn't mean you don't have MCAS. We just haven't been able to prove it yet. You know, symptom, symptom wise, it's very suspicious, but now we got to figure out how to, how to do that. So, you know, we do, we do blood work. Um, and so there's some things you can check in the blood, histamine, chromogranin A, tryptase and heparin. And heparin. Yeah, you mentioned a- heparin. That was, I thought, very interesting. Um, so, because again, those are all released by the mast cell. So 
It's interesting. I picked up a piece that had the hereditary alpha tryptosemia, you know, because I saw that their tryptase was in like the 12 range. It wasn't super high, but it was obviously elevated. So you, I guess you get that, but a lot of the patients, it's normal or low. So they. <laughs> correct, correct. But we check it because, you yeah. know, we may Just find to be something thorough. else. Yeah. One might find something else. So there's the, the blood work. And then, um, and there are a number of other things I might, ch- I might check like a, a chronic urticaria panel, which really looks at the basophils and. Yes. But the, since the basophils and the mast cells are related, you know, sometimes right. that can be helpful in understanding whether there's an autoimmune predisposition or issue. And then there's the urine testing, random and 24-hour urine. You know, we'll look at the, some of these uh, metabolites uh, like N-methylhistamine, like uh, prostaglandin D2, leukotrienes. And so there, there are those, the 2,3 diner prostaglandin, F2. No, that's it's good. Like that's a, good enough. I'm not. <laughs> nobody yeah, can know never, those things without looking at it. it. But let me um, ask you it, though: the CD117 yeah. biopsy. You know, yeah. I tried to get a gastroenterologist to do it, and they looked at me like I'm crazy. Like, how do you do? Have you been able to get some specialist? Let's say if they're doing a, and, and where where are they best look in the upper GI or lower GI? I mean, because again, if the patient's having a lot of abdominal symptoms. Yeah, the whole GI tract. So a lot of my patients, by the time they've come to see me, many of them have been scoped from one area or the other, or both. If they haven't, I don't necessarily, you know, make them go get biopsied or anything, but many of them have had it. So we, and many of them have been biopsied. It could be upper or, or lower. We, what we do is we request the biopsy samples. We have a pathologist that we work with uh, mm. locally who will help us and they'll, she'll take the samples and she'll uh, stain them with CD117, which will identify mast cells. Um, and then, and then they count them. And and in the GI tract, you know, we we usually say greater than twenty mast cells per high power field is suggestive of of MCAS. But I do have doctors in the area or GI doctors who will, if I, if the patient needs to have an endoscopy right. or colonoscopy, right. will give them this form. And and some of the GI doctors know already that they have to ask the pathologist right away to do the CD. So does it just for like a specific question, this, so let's say, you know, obviously a GI doctors doing up in Westchester, uh, you know, up Westchester yeah. and endoscopy on one of, uh, one of your patients yeah. and you request it, the actual, I guess, center or wherever they're doing the endoscopy, whether it's, you know, like an outpatient clinic or in the hospital, they'll actually have their pathologist or they send, they will to, you say, because I don't know if they have this available, this like special stain for CD117, you know. They they do, but here's the problem. So yeah. again, I have, you know, locally Greenwich Hospital, because Greenwich Hospital in Greenwich, Connecticut is the hospital that does our CD-117 staining, we have a great pathologist there. So if our patients are doing their procedures there, you know, they can, they'll do it ahead of time for us. Some of the other places, you know, it's, it's not so much that they can't do it. They don't understand the literature on this. Right, right. They don't feel like they, the literature is robust enough Mm. to confirm that this is going to be that greater than 20 is going to be important. Some of them will give us a report. It will say something like uh, mast cells look normal, right? They're basically saying that they don't have mastocytosis and, but sometimes they won't count it for us. So we'll have Mm. to go back and say, well, you counted for us. And if they won't, we'll have to send it to our pathologist. It's complicated for sure. It's not not always very accepted. You you know, it's interesting because the, the comparison for me is like with, eosinophilic esophagitis, you know, obviously for many, many years, it was overlooked that patients that were having 
gastric reflux, having actually choking sensations, um, had this abundance of eosinophils in the upper esophagus or the upper, upper stomach. And now it's kind of routine. Pretty much every pathologist in any hospital or facility and the GI doctors are asking for it because it's a different treatment to some degree. So, I feel, yeah, I feel like it was with the mast cell activation, we're a little bit in the early part of the game here that hopefully <clears throat> there will be pathologists doing this because it's, as I said, again, to the patients do really want to know. I mean, they, you know, it's, you know, it's obviously a different treatment than so many other things, which we'll, we'll you know, we can hopefully get into a little bit. So, and, um, can, I, and can I just yeah, mention about EOE, you know, a lot of those patients who have EOE, who come in to see us, who are suspicious that there's more to the story. There often is more to the story. Um, we'll have, we'll look at their staining of the EOE samples, right? So they have increased eosinophils. And then and then you, you do the CD117 staining of that sample. And guess what? They have a, a, a tremendous number of mast cells in those samples with the eosinophils. And we know, right, that mm, mast cells- They will work together. To eosinophils. Yeah, right. And so the treatment, so a lot of these, these patients who have EOE who are not getting better with a standard treatment for EOE, and we find increased mast cells, we treat their EOE, right, through a mast cell focus. Yeah treatment protocol and and actually they get better and then when you get repeat when they go in and they get repeat endoscopies and they find the eoe is better well guess what their mast cell issues are better as well when they mm. look at it through cd117 it's really really remarkable mm. so what is your approach to treating these patients how uh, is there some basic things you usually do and then refine it for other patients what's your i'd like to just hear your uh, yeah. your stepwise approach in these patients Right. Step one. Well, so you make a diagnosis step and then step one is eliminate triggers. And it's working with the patients to understand what their triggers may be um, and, and what's really continuing to, to drive this. So if they have, again, they have underlying Bartonella, we, we see a tremendous amount of Bartonella mm. Bartonellosis in our practice. And, and so if, if they have that, I can treat their MCAS you know, till I'm blue in the face, really. And I'm never going to get them 100% better because they have something continuously driving their, their, um, the activation of the mast cell. On the other hand, you know, sometimes treating the mast cell issue really helps them deal with their triggers right. and infections and everything better. So it's really from a case by case basis trying to figure out what really their top layer, you know, I think about it as like the onion and the layers of the onion. So what's the top layer? And so um, if I'm going to first start with their mast cells, I might start with antihistamines. Mm -hmm. You know, it may be for some patients who are concerned about medication, I might use in natural antihistamines. I might try vitamin C or quercetin or um, certain types of probiotics or vitamin, vitamin D is probably like one of my, my first line for a lot of these patients who are severely deficient, but it's trying to, well, what, what does the vitamin D do for the mast cell? Just out of curiosity. I know it's good for the oh, immune vitamin system. Vitamin D receptors on the mast cell. Vitamin oh. D receptors on the mast cell. And so what does that do if there's, so if you have a higher level of vitamin D. No, low level vitamin D. So they are no, I'm saying if you have, Right. I'm saying if you have a low level of vitamin D and you raise that, yeah. what does that do to the mast cell? Stabilizes it. It stabilizes. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay. You know, I know that a lot of eczema patients, it's also been one of my go-tos for years. You know, right. a, lot of the, a lot of the studies show that by getting higher vitamin D levels, uh, we know we can decrease anaphylaxis. I guess this all makes sense now. It's all coming together. Decreases right. anaphylaxis and right. decreases... Um, you know, urticaria and eczema, all this stuff. Yeah. Okay. Cells, like right. Fascinating. Okay. But the, but the key is like, there are lots of tools that I have and, and, you know, I, I might have to go to antihistamines and, you know, mm -hmm. Zyrtec Claritin. 
whatever, I might have to compound them. But I want to be clear, you know, the excipient issue is really the complicated factor for a lot of these patients, even with vitamin D. You know, a lot of a lot of patients will come in and say, I can't take vitamin D. You know, I react mm-hmm. to it. Right. But think about it this way, you can't live without vitamin D. So they're right. not really reacting to vitamin D because again, right. they wouldn't be able to, right. to, right. to right. live. Exactly. They're reacting to an excipient, you know, whether, you know, some vitamin Ds are made with soybean oil. And so maybe they're reacting to that. Some of them, maybe the vitamin D formulation from lanolin is a, is a problem. And they're, they have a wool, you know, uh, allergy. Uh, maybe it's, it's something else in the capsule in the, so, you know, a lot of times it's really trying to figure out with the patient for anything, not just vitamin D for any of these things, what the excipient issues might be, how you might want to compound these things. And and this, so in the early stages, it's really sort of that trying to figure that all out. Do you feel also, it's interesting because we know that the, I think the, the, the intestine and the gut has the most amount of mast cells in the whole body, I believe, right? I think even more than the skin. So do you feel that also treating the gut is the key issue? Like let's say using oral chromalin sodium, like gastrochrome, mm-hmm. would that be a really key thing? Even though a patient might not be having GI symptoms, yeah. trying to still block, you know, calm down the mast cells that are signaling to the other cells. Oh yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, that is so key. I have patients, their neurologic symptoms get better with chromalin. Uh, they don't have GI symptoms, but you use the, you know, you've calmed down the mast cell symptoms of the GI tract and their neurologic symptoms. Right. I mean, that's like, with celiac, that's like with celiac disease. I had Alessio Fasano on here. I mean, you know, they, it was, they, it was you know, about two, a year and a half, two years ago. And it was fascinating in the book that he wrote, I mean, he really brought credence to like these patients with celiac, they were having neurological psych, you know, psychiatric issues. And once the whole GI tract for, you know, the gluten issue was corrected, those things got better. So you're saying the same thing with the the mast cell. Yeah. Same thing, but not just chromalin. I mean, chromalin is not right for everybody. Um, So yeah. So looking at the gut in in a variety of different ways, how we can, um, you know, stabilize it, whether it's a H2 blocker, whether it's chromalin, whether it's some other mast cell targeted therapy, whether it's the right probiotics, whether maybe they have SIBO, we see a tremendous amount of SIBO in MCAS patients. And of course, if there's an imbalance in the gut, if, or even dysbiosis in the large intestine, or this SIBO in the small intestine, that's going to trigger mast cells. So you have to also think about you know, if they're not getting better, what other pieces have to be, have to be addressed. You, you want to know my special secret? I think yeah. I may have told you at the meeting once it's, it's worked wonders with so many patients. And I learned this from a person who was not a doctor, but I did see an article about this years before is that I have the patients take a teaspoon of baking soda and put in some hot water. And you may say like, what is that about? Oh, yeah. and, and I, uh, there was an article 20 years ago. I'll never forget uh, in my allergy literature, it was done in Japan. It was a case report, but what they did was there was a patient that had exercise-induced anaphylaxis, exercise food-induced anaphylaxis. It's a very unusual condition, but what it is, just to explain to the listeners, is like this patient could eat wheat if he was like sitting at the table, no problem. But if he ate wheat and exercised within a half an hour, like vigorous exercise, he would go into anaphylaxis. So it's a very unusual, interesting condition, except for the patient, it's not that interesting. You know, they, they want to exercise. Uh, but anyway, in Japan, what they did, I don't know why they decided to do this, but they, they gave him a certain amount of sodium bicarbonate, which is baking soda, half an hour before he ate the wheat and before he exercised. And it totally blunted the mast cells from releasing. He didn't go into anaphylaxis. And later on, I realized it did two things because by making the, the GI tract and the, essentially his body more alkaline, it's chemistry. The mast cells 
you know, uh, changed the chemistry and didn't want to release. So I, I advise, I've been for years advising a lot of my patients that have those dangerous food allergies before they go to a, like a wedding, a bar mitzvah, a party with, again, they're not going to know what they might unfortunately, you know, come in contact with and eat to, to do this before they go and even use it initially along with an antihistamine. So anyway, that's my little secret, you know, that uh, I, I tell, that. I tell so many of my patients, but it's, it's so simple. Uh, what I do tell patients though is, if you're traveling, carry uh, sodium bicarbonate tablets because you right. don't want to be stopped at the airport thinking that you have cocaine in your uh, <laughs> in your knapsack. You know, I, I said, Dr. Mitchell said it's okay. <laughs> right. So I use a lot of that. I mean, I, I use that bite baking soda trick for patients oh, who are well for some, but if for a different reason. And now I'm okay. thinking about it, right, maybe it's here. working because of of the mast cell piece, mm. I might use that for, you know, what we call like a Herxheimer reaction or a die-off yeah. reaction if patients are being treated for infection. But now I'm thinking really what it's doing is it's it's neutralizing things and it's probably helping their mast cell. Okay. Mm. You taught right. me so, something today. Yeah, that was like fun. That. You mentioned at the, at the conference too, just I, I don't want to overlook this too, because I had never heard about this, the anti-neuronal antibody. Now, is that yeah. for patients that get... I guess psychiatric symptoms you're, you're screening for, or is it anything with MCAS or? Yeah, no, I mean, th- these are really, you know, the, the panels we're looking at are patients for patients who have neurologic um, issues. Mm-hmm. We might use uh, molecularia labs or, or it's really the Cunningham panel. They're looking at these different antibodies to different uh, neurologic, either receptors or um, things that are, again, uh, have to do with let's say neurotransmitter production or mm-hmm. or neurotransmitter um, uh, metabolism or, or things like that. So looking at let's say anti I'm going to give you an example anti dopamine receptor antibodies may cause patients to be be more depressed may have eating disorders things like that. So I'm using these tests to really look for pa- patients who might have autoimmune encephalopathy who might have like a PANS or PANDAS. Some of your listeners might, might have heard of like PANS or PANDAS. Mm-hmm. Yes. Or mm-hmm. Children who have inflammation in their brain. We see it in adults. We need a, a name for adults. But I might use this in patients who, you know, have, they, they might have MCAS or maybe I haven't been able to find MCAS and I feel like they still have symptoms uh, neurologically, mostly, you know, brain symptoms. I might use that test to, to really um, understand the inflammation in the brain better, whether there's an autoimmune process going on in addition to uh, mast cell activation, or maybe the mast cells are driving the inflammation. Mm-hmm. So that's what I, I think I, that's what I was referring to. I want to bring up, I'm going to jump to something that's very current now, and, and it's obviously very concerning is obviously with COVID and unfortunately with COVID vaccines. I'm actually, uh, you, you were at the, at the conference and we got to hear Dr. Bruce Patterson speak. And mm-hmm. I've been actually testing some of my patients with Dr. Patterson's protocol of doing, mm-hmm. you know, the cytokine testing because it's really fascinating. But what's even more fascinating and scary is the amount of cases that they've seen, you know, with the long haul COVID. And unfortunately, too, some of the people who have either gotten COVID and then were vaccinated and then started to develop a lot of these severe kind of symptoms, which you're very familiar with, chronic fatigue, you know, the long haul COVID, the whole, the whole yeah. thing, really unusual pains and everything. What's your just thoughts about mast cells being involved with that? I mean, do you think that's where that needs to be addressed? Is that the way to possibly approach and treat these patients? Are you seeing those in your practice, the long haulers? Oh, oh yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. 
And, and I think the important point, I mean, I love the work that, um, you know, Dr. Patterson is doing and, and, and his group. Um, yeah, we've done some of those cytokine tests too, but, you know, I kind of think about it this way. Well, what cells are making those cytokines, right? Some of them are ma- being made by mast cells. Right. The majority of the long haul patients that we're seeing. So I find this interesting. I'll give you a little bit of a, of a, like a statistic from our, our practice. None of my patients who are being treated for MCAS have gotten long haul COVID. Really? Wow. So that's a, that's a, that's a bold statement. Yeah. At least my, you know, at least I can't speak to, let's say Dr. Afrin's patients, but I can speak to mine. I can say that, um, Mm. you know, because I'm treating them, you know, for their, their mass cell, even if they're not well, hundred percent well controlled, generally, if they've gotten COVID, some of them might've had a long course with COVID because of their MCAS or other things going on, but but I don't have any patients that have long haul COVID that have the long-term complications that we're hearing about. And again, my, so my theory is that that's because they're being treated for the problem that probably is driving some of the long haul issues. And that's mm, mass that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. So the patients that I'm seeing who have, I've not treated prior to right. them having long haul COVID when we've done the testing, you know, we are often finding underlying MCAS. They often have a history, and this is really interesting. Many of them have considered themselves healthy until they've gotten, they got COVID and then had the long-term complications. But when you take their history, many of them have had symptoms that are suggestive of MCAS. They just didn't know because they were so Right. Right, exactly. It just didn't get in the way of their life too much, you know. Interesting, yeah. right? Yeah. Some of them have had allergic type symptoms. Some of them have had GI, you know, gut issues or migraines or things like that. Again, but they're functioning well until COVID is the that trigger for their mast cells, and then they can't recover because their mast cells were dysfunctional beforehand. Hmm. But but they may have been able to again. They may re- were able to function. Their mast cells may have been dysfunctional, and then and then COVID brings out more dysfunction. And so in many of those patients, you know, the key that we found is that we treat their, their mast cell activation syndrome and yeah, many of them get better. Now I still think that we're missing something. I'm not, I'm not hundred percent convinced that it's only MCAS because many of them get better with MCAS targeted therapy, but there may be still be a piece missing. And so whether that's persistent viral Uh, load, which we don't know, but, you know, is starting to, there's some research coming out, you know, do they still have persistent viruses? Do they have underlying issues? Like we have seen a number of patients who had Lyme disease, didn't really know it, but COVID and their immune dysregulation brought it out. And so actually they're still sick, not because of the COVID, but because of underlying. Yeah. So, you know, Dr. Patterson actually says that I'm I'm anxious to see, supposedly he has a paper that's coming out Again, based on their cytokine algorithm, let's see. I mean, that's something we, you know, with high technology, we would love to have that seeing certain um, cytokines, like just actually last night we were, I was, had a meeting with him and he was like, because we had a patient that we were working together on and he saw that, I think it was, I'm going off the top of my head here, that I think the patient had a high IL-13. He goes, this is reactivated Lyme. He goes, this is not from the COVID. So it was just very interesting. You know, I mean, he's a virologist and immunologist that hopefully, you know, I, I've been waiting my whole career for this, you know, because I had to study all these cytokines with my boards for 30 years, <laughs> you know, so now I'm like, oh, now I get to use this. But uh, it would be fascinating if that really helps helps us yeah. distinguish. Because I know, again, too, you see those chronic Lyme patients, you know, you see the 
the CIRS patients, whether it's from Lyme or mold. I mean, these are very complicated patients who are struggling and, you know, we're trying to treat them the best way we can. You know, my other thought too is I, you know, I, I tell all my patients this, you know, I'm, I'm very pro-vaccine. I'm actually not very pro-boosters. You know, I'm, you know, as I said, I'm an immunologist. I think the two vaccines in most cases should have been enough. The, the virus has evolved a lot now. I don't even think getting more of the same prior vaccine would be that helpful. Um, and honestly, I just want your opinion. I'm very concerned with my MCAS patients about getting vaccinated because a lot of them, you know, it sets things off. I mean, if I, you know, I don't like to give any exceptions for people being vaccinated because I think it's for the greater good of our, the world and our country. But some patients, it's pretty dangerous. Is, is, have you found that to be the case? Yeah, look, you know, I, I certainly have a handful of patients who are currently not well controlled with their MCAS. And I do worry about setting off, you know, and, and making it a little worse. I, let me let me be clear. I'm also pro-vaccine. And but I think that each patient needs to be uh, addressed, um, you know, individually. And, you know, I think that the, the majority of my patients who have done well um, with I should say the majority of my patients have done well with vaccination, even if they have underlying MCAS. Again, because we've treated their MCAS. Mm. And I really, although I can't, I can't guarantee that they go into that vaccine 100% controlled, but we have protocols we're using to try to make sure that they're going into it in the best shape possible. And so many of them have done quite well with the vaccine, you know, sure, they might have, you know, 24 hours or 36 hours, like everyone else. Right. That shows the immune system's kicking in and working, right? Working. But but certainly there are patients who I, you know, I, I feel uncomfortable with them doing it because I know they're not well controlled and I know that it's potentially going to make it worse. However, getting COVID will certainly make them worse. And so a lot of it is really trying to weigh, again, risk benefit for everybody and try to make sure. I, I really think that a, a mass cell targeted approach going into the vaccine, actually not just for the COVID vaccine, but for any vaccine, I would argue, is probably going to be going to be important and beneficial. As we're kind of wrapping up, is there any areas uh, in functional medicine that really super excite you and anything on the horizon, like hopefully any new stuff on either chronic Lyme or anything else you're working on? I, I saw also something on your your website. I wasn't even sure what the therapy was. I think it's called SOTS. Right? Yeah, I'm yeah. so excited about this therapy, actually. that was I was going to mention it. Then you okay, okay, great. It. Tell us about it. I don't know anything about this. Okay, so SOT, SOT, stands for Supportive Oligonucleotide Technique. Okay. And it's a technology that actually is being looked at and studied for cancer. I think that's really where the research started. And in fact, the lab that we're using for this, and I'll explain what we use this for, actually started their work in in the cancer world. And this is a technology that we're using now for infections. We can use it for viruses and bacteria and even parasites. And and basically what what the premise is, is it's a molecule. The SOT is really a, a molecule. It's a protein that matches the protein of whatever infection you're trying to to get at. So let's say Epstein-Barr, okay? We do it for Lyme and Bartonella and and different herpes viruses, but let's just say we use Epstein-Barr as an example. You know, it has a a code, a DNA code 
And the lab that does this saw therapy or that, that creates the technique is really, or the technology is really creating, we're sending blood to the lab and that's, that person's, the DNA of that, that Epstein-Barr is being looked at. And then this protein is being created, like it's an RNA molecule that then is going to fit the DNA of that virus. And it's infused. So basically blood, blood, we send to a special lab, they create the protein, we then get sent the protein. Sounds very personalized. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very personalized. It is to the DNA of the particular virus, bacteria, whatever the patient has, Mm -hmm. and it fits like a lock and key. And so over the course of four months, six months, this protein is shutting down the multiplication, the replication of, let's say, the virus that that we're we're focusing on. We can do this for various uh, infections. It's done one at a time. So if I think Epstein-Barr is an issue, we're going to target that. If if we think Lyme is an issue, we'll target that. We may do several. Um, but what's exciting about this? The reason I that we started doing this about three three plus years ago, maybe maybe it's almost four at this point. And um, you know we. One of the frustrating um, pieces is really treating patients with chronic infections, um, you know, is really difficult and, and antibiotics don't always work and herbs don't always work and um, the patients are still sick. And um, this technology has really allowed us to treat patients who would otherwise um, continue being sick. A lot of them, again, if they have MCAS and they can't take certain drugs, they can't take certain herbs, they're reactive to a lot of things. This has been a really interesting way of targeting infections and um, with, with less side effects. Was this done in Europe or something initially? Like, I, I've never heard of this. You know, is that it, it started in Europe and came over so here? Or? This lab is in Greece, actually, the yeah. lab that, that creates this and sends it to us. But, but I actually have some colleagues in America who are, who are actually studying this in cancer. Oh. oh, wow. I think there's a, there's a, I forgot if it was um, MD Anderson. I think there are a few others around the country that are looking at this particular SOT. It's actually called um, anti-sense therapy. So in the oh, camp- that I've heard of. Yes, yeah, that's oh, okay, that's the uh, that's yeah, that's very interesting. I I'm just wondering too. You know, it's so funny. The guy that I, um, who won the Nobel Prize, I'm blanking on his name. He was my year at college from Brown, and I, I think he got the Nobel Prize for that. You know, because he discovered right. the anti-sense. Um, whole RNA thing. And then it was hopefully that whole promise how this was going to treat a lot of diseases. So that now, now it makes sense to me. So, you know, so it, it pulls it all together. Yeah. Um, I should have said that early on, but that's really where the, where, interesting. Where the part okay. Yeah. yeah. I know it's, this may sound a little foreign to our listeners, but it's just like anything. You have to always hear something in initial time and say, what the heck is that? And then all of a sudden you hear it a little bit more and more. And then before you realize you say, you know what, this is important. So, mm-hmm. Well, is there anything else you'd like to mention? Because I was going to, you know, just conclude and thank you for uh, coming on. Thank you you for having me. Yeah. Is there any place where we could send people if they want to learn more about what you're doing and your medical practice? Sure, sure. Um, I have two two websites, one for myself and uh, some of the things that I've done, and that's um, www.drtanyadempsey.com. So dr. Yeah, drtanyadempsey.com. And then the practice website is AIM, A-I-M, Center, 
PM and PM stands for personalized medicine, aimcenterpm.com. Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, we, I write a lot, blog a lot, um, you know, do these t- podcasts and, and then of course, Facebook, Dr. Tanya Dempsey and Instagram as well. We do, you know, kind of post all these things. I'd like to get the information out there. Education is key. The more people that know about this, not just practitioners, but I think that patients need to, to be empowered. They need to, you know, unfortunately they, they often have to fight for their, for themselves and, and, and for getting the care they need. So the more information they have and the more that we can, they can educate and I can educate practitioners, the better it is for our patients. I agree with you hundred percent. You know, I, get, I always tell the patients what impresses me so much is that how they are so proactive and I hate to even say it. I think most of these patients know more than 90% of the physicians out there about a lot of these things. Oh, no so question. it's, it's a very exciting time to be in medicine and uh, to be working with patients. So thank you again, Dr. Tanya Dempsey for joining us. And please, for all my listeners, if you enjoyed the podcast, leave us a review, tell us maybe what you want to hear about at, the smartest doctor in the room. And until we meet next time.